0: Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're going to wrap up this chapter today. Not a whole lot of verses, but in my studying, I believe the Lord was leading me to um, kind of dwell on some of the aspects of Stephen's life. And so this morning... The message is um, titled, Full of the Spirit. And this man, he has a short amount of time in in God's Word, and it's at least what's recorded of him. But uh, like I shared last week, his message, when he is brought before the council to um, speak for himself and the accusations that are leveled against him and the ministry that he has been participating in, uh, is some of the longest passages of of a, of a speech or a presentation of the gospel that we have. And Luke thought it, it important enough to include all of that. But we will get into his response next week as we learn um, about his accusations, but also more about this, the character of this man, Stephen. So let's look at our... Um, Bibles, we're going to read uh, all of chapter 6 this morning, just to get us in a context here. So it says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, Therefore brethren seek out from among you seven men of good reputation full of the holy spirit and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business but we will give ourselves continually to prayer to the ministry of the word and the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose stephen a man full of faith in the holy spirit and philip prochorus nicanor timon parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, And they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses, who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, who will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us, and all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. As we look at Stephen this morning and the accusations that were leveled against him, what we see in Stephen is what God will do with a man or a woman who knows and loves him with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. They look like Jesus in the things that they do, and we'll see that as we look at uh, Stephen's life. The way that they minister to people's needs The way that they talk like Jesus and about him. They also will experience rejection like Jesus. And what we see in this snapshot of the early church is a life of a man given over to the Lord. To minister to those that the Lord had called him to minister to. And to speak of the Lord to those that God has placed before him. But we see in Stephen's life that he was full of five things faith, the Holy Spirit, wisdom, grace, and power. We see Stephen as a man who was full of gifts from God, and that his life was one that honored and glorified God. Now, in verse 8, we pick up where it says that Stephen, full of faith and power, The word full describes an abounding or an abundance of a thing. And so Stephen is this example of what it looks like to be overflowing with the things of the Lord. Overflowing with these five things. Abounding in them. And it's said in verse 5, actually, as we've read in context, that he was a man full of faith. And what is being described here by faith is that he was a man of a firm persuasion or conviction or a belief in the truth. And of what truth was he believing in? Of course, it was Jesus as the Son of God, the incarnate Word, the Messiah, our Savior, the head of the church. That was what his conviction was in. This is what led him down the path that he was going. But how did Stephen develop this type of faith? How does this type of faith come upon a person? Where does this type of faith come from? Well, we read in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so something we can learn from Stephen this morning is that his faith was the byproduct of a man who was drenched or soaked in the word of God. His faith could only grow in accordance with how well he knew his Lord and Savior. The whole of his response to his accusers, as we'll see next week, is from the scriptures. He didn't have anything of his own to present to them but just the scriptures that God that he had hidden in his heart he knew the word of God he was able to actually preach to his accusers without preparation with complete confidence and conviction because he knew the word of God and his faith was built up during his time spent in the word of God in these days Most people didn't have Bibles that they carried around with them. The way that they heard God's word was to gather with the congregation. To gather in the synagogues even, in this early church. To hear God's word taught. To hear God's word read. And then they would take what they learned and they would commit it to memory and they would meditate upon it. Dwell upon it day in and day out. And so it was during this time of gathering together where God's Word was being read and taking what he learned and meditating upon it, that his faith in this conviction was built up within him. It was made firm by the Word of God. We also see in verses 5 and 10 that it said of Stephen that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Well, Ezekiel 36 verse 27 says, this is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, Ezekiel was looking forward to a time, this time actually, that's being described for us in Acts where the spirit of God dwells in his people. And the result of people filled with the Holy Spirit are people that walk in accordance with God's law and keep it and they do it. Jesus will go on to summarize to some of his uh, questioners, the people that would ask him things as he was teaching in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Uh, a man came to him and said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He was trying to find, you know, ask Jesus, what's the most important thing that I need to do? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It was in the love of God and the love of Your neighbor, that you would be able to fulfill all the law. So, the greatest commandment is to love God. Now, one way that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit was that he was a doer of the word. He loved God to the bitter end, and he loved others as was displayed in his ministry, as we see him doing great signs and wonders, we see him being elected by the congregation to go and to serve the widows. He was one who loved God and loved others. We also see that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit when we look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 22, where we see that it was, uh, as Paul's, declaring to the Galatians what the fruit of the Spirit is, what the Spirit looks like, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Think back to what Ezekiel said, that when the Spirit of God is placed within the God's people, they would fulfill the law. They would keep the law. And we see Paul speaking of these great fruits of the Spirit. And how there is no law against these things. These, these things produced in a person by the Holy Spirit. They're not going to break the law. They're going to walk in it. He goes on to say, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We see that a life full of the Holy Spirit is yielded to, the, to His direction and it produces fruits. So, fruit in a tree is meant to do a couple of things. It might do more, but a couple of things I want to point out. One, fruit, it's produced by plants or a tree. To reproduce, right? Typically, fruits are, contain the seed, and when the seed is either taken away by another animal and, and dropped off somewhere else, or uh, it drops to the ground and, and the fruit decays, the seed is then put into the ground and it can reproduce. Or the fruit can also be the, for the nourishing of other beings, other animals, to feed others. So we can draw a correlation here that a life full of the Holy Spirit, in our example, is one that ministers to others by proclaiming the gospel. Reproduction, right? Reproducing, telling others about Jesus and having their lives changed and become followers of Christ to reproduce another follower of Jesus. Or it's also by ministering to other believers. And that these fruits of the Spirit, this love, this joy, this peace, this long-suffering, it's nourishing to those who have need of that in their lives. And so it's produced as the Spirit works in our lives for the given situation to be able to minister to others. And we see all of this displayed in Stephen's life. Even in the short passage that we have about him. But as we look in verse 8, we see that Stephen was also full of grace. Now, some of your Bibles may, mine reads faith, Stephen full of faith and power, but some Bibles translate it as grace. And really, there's some differing opinions on how to translate this passage and what's being said here, specifically with that word. But really, when we look at the scope of God's word, there isn't a problem with the Difference in words. Look at uh, on the screen here Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show us the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8 is the key one here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, grace and faith, they go hand in hand. We see God at work in Stephen's life by his grace. Stephen is a sinner just like you and me. And all that God was doing through Stephen began with his grace at work in Stephen when Stephen trusted or placed his faith in Christ. Stephen didn't earn this role like you and me. He doesn't deserve the role. But by God's grace, God chose him to use Stephen in mighty ways. See, grace in the life of a believer is connected to the giftings in which they hold. That the Lord gives to his people to be used for his glory. Stephen showed a fullness of grace in the way that the Lord was using him to minister to others. The gifts that he was exercising. And we see Stephen walking in the good works that God prepared for him. Prepared before him for him. Isn't that a wonderful thought to think that God knows you so well and has prepared you, each one of us in here, for something specific. For specific work. For his glory. You see, Stephen... Himself was full of power as well. And this word power is the Greek word dunamis. It speaks of a spirit of strength, meaning vigor in opposition to a spirit of cowardice. So it has this idea of power and boldness to describe Stephen. He was not one who backed down in the face of opposition. As we'll see. Paul writes to Timothy in in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. He says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. See all of those flag words there, grace, calling, not according to our works. Stephen is an example of someone walking in the spirit. Walking in a spirit of power. Not in cowardice as people would uh, come against him, debate with him as we've read already and will continue to look at But even Timothy needed to be exhorted by, by Paul. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And how often that, it, 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 it's a tendency is of ours, right? Sometimes to back down or to keep quiet. I pray that the Lord would give us a power, a fullness of power, of boldness, to proclaim the gospel, the testimony of our Lord Jesus. We also see it said of Stephen that he was a man full or abounding in wisdom. It's mentioned in verse 10, but also by way of um, some of the criteria that the the apostles set forth in choosing these men to be full of wisdom. In Luke 21, verse 12, it says, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You see, that was Jesus' words to his apostles, to to us, his followers, his disciples, that there will be time where we will be called out to give testimony, to call out to speak on behalf of the Lord. And Jesus makes a promise here. And I think it's Stephen knowing this promise that gave him even more boldness. He said, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which your adversaries will not be able to contradict. And we see this played out in Stephen's life as we continue on. It says that they were, in, in verse 10, that they were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. But it was in this power this power, or full of faith and power, that we see uh, Stephen doing great signs and wonders. And we've seen wonders and signs done through the apostles so far. Back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And in Acts 5, verse 12, it says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women, so that they brought out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Great signs of ministry to the hurting and the broken. Proclaiming Jesus as the healer and the coming king, whose kingdom there will be no sickness, nor death, nor sin, nor unclean spirits to torment or oppress. All will be healed and whole. Later in Acts, we'll see Paul and Barnabas, uh, see it said about them of the signs and wonders that were done by their hands. In Acts 14.3, it says, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands all of these signs and wonders confirming the word that was preached. So we know Stephen was a man who preached the word of God. One of the church deacons empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform these miracles, attesting to the message that he taught. Now, Stephen is a testimony and an example to us of the Spirit-filled life. He stands out for one main reason, and that is that his life Looked like Jesus. That's why we're attracted to what it says to him or says about him. Why we're intrigued about this man, because, because his life looked like Jesus. Everything that is said about Stephen was first seen in the person of Jesus. When it talks about being full of the Spirit, Luke 4:14 4, says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And news of Him went throughout all the surrounding region. Our Lord functioned in the power of the Holy Spirit. When it talks about wisdom being full and abounding in wisdom, it says in Matthew 13, 54, that when He had come to His own country, Jesus, He taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? We see mighty works and wisdom proclaimed about Jesus, When it talks about grace, being full of grace, John will make a comment about Jesus saying, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the bringer of grace. He was the bringer of truth. And we see him functioning in the fullness of power. In Acts 10, it's reported how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The power of God giving testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. But when we look at Stephen, what we need to pull from is that a true disciple will develop the traits and actions of their teacher. We could even use the example of a child bearing the uh, the same quirks of the parents, <laughs> or picking up your bad habits and even your good ones. But I like the example of a true disciple who will develop the traits and the actions of their teacher. See, Stephen responded to the gospel message, embracing Jesus as his Savior, and he never looked back. Jesus' blood cleansed Stephen from all of his unrighteousness. Jesus' resurrection was the surety of his word to Stephen. Jesus became an end for Stephen when it came to trying to do the works of the law to be accepted by God. And we see the Holy Spirit filling Stephen, empowering him to walk in the ways of the Lord. The Holy Spirit giving Stephen the grace to preach with courage, teach boldly, to do signs and wonders among the people and to take care of widows. Stephen is who he is by the grace and the goodness of God. And the wonderful amazing news, the same is true for us, for each one of us. In Christ, there is grace, acceptance for all who come to him. In Christ, there is redemption through the blood of Christ, forgiveness of sins. In Christ, there is newness of life, God's mercy and love giving us life when we were dead in sin. And all of these loving, wonderful things that flow into our lives come through Jesus. You see, what makes Stephen so special is not so much Stephen, but Jesus and Stephen. And that promise is for us just as much as it was for Him. Newness of life. Ministry that the Lord would lead you in and empower you to do for His glory. Satisfaction and fulfillment that, that cannot be attained by any other means. Now, all of these great things that we see in Stephen, they weren't always received well by other people. We've already seen this with the apostles. As they proclaimed Jesus, as they taught the truth, as people were being healed and they were being saved and following Jesus, opponents showed up. People who should have received the gospel who should have known about Jesus and received Him, yet they rejected it. Because Jesus ultimately becomes a threat to their way of life, or their belief system, or their social status. We see Stephen now facing opposition that will ultimately lead to his death. But a death in which he glorifies the Lord. Let's look at verses 9 through 14. Peter, I'm sorry, wrong chapter there. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, we have the mention of this group of people, this group of guys from what is called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And this is, I just, I don't know, this is something that stood out to me. It's the first mention of synagogue in Acts. And these sites of or these synagogues will be sites that will become a main point of ministry for the Apostle Paul and those who went with him on his missionary journeys as we continue through this book of Acts. It would be one of the first places that the Apostle Paul will go to preach the gospel to the Jews. And as we see, as we'll see, uh, he was often rejected by some and accepted by others. And when the rejection was overwhelming, he just went to the Jews or the Gentiles and began preaching to them. But what a synagogue was, it was a gathering place for the Jews originally who lived outside of Jerusalem. Uh, though these synagogues would later pop up in Jerusalem, they were really, they were super important to the Jews. And uh, historians believe that they came into existence around the Babylonian exile. Remember, you know, Daniel uh, and his three buddies when they were taken away by Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, we saw at this time that there must have been the gathering together in these buildings for uh, the Jews that were exiled. And it would have been a place where these more devout Jews, far from their native land, having no sanctuary or altar, felt drawn from time to time, especially on Sabbath, on the Sabbath and feast days, to gather around those who, spe- who were specially pious and God-fearing, in order to listen to the Word of God and to engage in some kind of worship. And so these were gathering places for people to continue to worship after the exile many years later, when the Jews were dispersed abroad, uh, wherever they went, they would erect these synagogues. And they kept up these stated services of worship. And these synagogues would typically be built by uh, either a set of sponsors or a more well-off uh, person in the community. Maybe it would be giving up a, a portion of their land to build these places But this would be a gathering place for the Jews. And so in Jesus' day, these, these synagogues, they would have services. And, you know, they would have their service around the same hours as those that were a part of the temple. Hours of prayer, which formed a kind of liturgy for them. And with these 18 prayers being said, there would be reading of scripture. And there would also be an expo- uh, exposition of parts of the scripture as well. There were sometimes, uh, as we see in Acts, used as a court of, uh, to, where the rulers presided. And then we see them as public schools as well. But these ideas of the synagogues have influenced and modeled even the way that we worship today, Right? As we described, prayer, worship, the exposition of the Word of God. But we see a phrase used by John uh, as a threat that somebody could actually do something of offense that would put them out of the synagogue or to be excommunicated. And that was the cost for many of these earlier Christians who had received Christ, that they would be excommunicated from the fellowship that was occurring in the synagogues. Now, this synagogue was described with the name called the synagogue of the freedmen. And in the old King James and some other translation, it says libertines, which just meant freedmen. The libertines is actually only mentioned here in Acts. And these were Jews who have been taken prisoner uh, in the Syrian wars and were carried to Rome and reduced to slavery, but afterwards they were freed. And in Jerusalem, they had come together and set up a synagogue where uh, these men, studying, definitely educated, wanting to know, uh, you know, very committed to the law and such, um, came into collision here with Stephen. But one thing I want to note is that out of the list of the locations that made up that the this synagogue, the people from these locations, we see those from Cilicia. Now, Cilicia was uh, a province of Asia Minor, of which Tarsus was the capital. Does Tarsus sound familiar to any of you Bible nerds out there? This was the home of Paul, the Apostle. And so many believe that this is a very good possibility that Paul was a part of this group and even stirring up much of the uh, dispute with Stephen. And we see Paul uh, later on at the beginning of chapter 8, known as Saul at this point. Uh, Consenting to the death of Stephen. And so uh, there's this connection that believes or that many believe uh, that this synagogue is what started many of the persecution, and Paul was behind a lot of it. Now it says that they disputed with Stephen, but they they were not able to resist or not strong enough to resist. Psalm 119.98 says, You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. David writing upon these, uh, the priority of God's word in his life, how it makes one wise Gives more understanding than even your enemies. Because I keep your precepts. We see Stephen was not, or the, um, the, these men that were coming from the synagogue were unable to resist Stephen and the wisdom that he exercised. Because he knew the word of God. Now, when they couldn't do this, when they're having a difficult time being able to overcome Stephen and the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. It says that uh, they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So we see the move from publicly being able to overcome him to secretly now trying to destroy him. Secretly would describe bringing men under one's control by suggestion or by money. It's interesting how our words get translated, but the thoughts that go behind it. It seems that these men began to spread falsehood about Stephen and what he was saying, either by twisting what he had said or not understanding it completely, in order to stir up others to go against him. That was what was happening here. So by doing so, they were, they were controlling others or instigating people by what they were reporting about Stephen. They were spreading falsehood in order to build up agitation against Stephen. Good thing that doesn't happen today, right? Essentially, all of our modern media is doing that very thing. Reporting information in such a way that it stirs up people against one another. May God give us wisdom to sort through all of that. But look what they had to say to get people stirred up. They said that he was speaking blasphemous words. You see, blasphemous here is to utter words, literally harmful speech against God and divine things. They had to create a story which would incite others against Stephen. And blasphemy was a serious offense. The punishment for blasphemy was stoning to death. But what was said about Stephen was untrue. He wasn't blaspheming God. If anything, he was more representing God more accurately than they could understand. And he was speaking blasphemy against Moses and God. Notice, it's interesting to see that they put Moses before God. Or at least on par with God in the matter of these blasphemies. And they said these very things just to stir up the people against Stephen. Inciting the people, the elders and the scribes to their cause. So we see that they... Uh, stirred up the people, the elders, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And this is the third time that we see some of Jesus' followers, his uh, apostles, Stephen as a disciple, brought before the council, the Sanhedrin. We learned about them. The ruling leaders in Israel at this time. And so Stephen's standing before the Sanhedrin. And it says that they set up false witnesses to share these accusations against Stephen to the council. Now, what's interesting about these false witnesses is that they weren't necessarily outright liars. It seems as though they heard some of what Stephen taught, but did not know it accurately or purposefully misrepresented it. And again, the word blasphemy, or blasphemous words, is used. This time they're saying that he's speaking blasphemous words against the temple, or this holy place, as the Bible, as our passage reads, and the law. And one of the things they quoted him saying is that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And what's interesting, it's something we lose a little bit in In not being able to read Greek, is that the way they say Jesus of Nazareth was done with contempt in the tone. This Jesus of Nazareth, this guy from the backwoods of nowhere, he's gonna come and destroy our temple. We're gonna let him talk like this. But when we look at these accusations against Stephen, we actually can determine what he had been teaching. Some of these same accusations that were leveled against him were leveled against Jesus as well. In Matthew 26, 59, it says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at least two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Now, that's not what Jesus said, but that's what they purported that he said at his trial. In John 2 18 through 22, so the Jews answered him and said to to him, What sign do you show us since you have done these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Notice the nuance there. Not, I will destroy this temple. But destroy this temple. And this is the thing, John clears it up for us. He says, Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus said. See, Stephen was only teaching what Jesus had taught. He's only teaching what Jesus had said. And the Lord Jesus himself predicted the destruction of this temple. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have those recorded. Though he never said he would do it. The other half of the allegations against Stephen involved the law. Stephen would have understood that in Christ, the the very law was temporary. And that he saw the theological implications of being justified by faith and the fulfillment of the law by Jesus Christ. Jesus said himself in Matthew five seventeen, For I don't th- don't, uh, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Furthermore, if the gospel was for the whole world, the law had to be a temporary arrangement because the Gentiles didn't have a law to go by. And there's much more that can be said about, about that very thing. But one thing we're asked, we can ask too is that, did Jesus say that he would uh, change the customs that Moses handed down? No, he didn't because he was not an opponent of the law. So he was a supporter of the law and would fulfill it. But what we do see Jesus doing, and where they could, would have been partially correct is that Jesus would alter the customs of Mo- Moses, the oral traditions. You see, they would have the law, and then they would have the things that they would teach in order to, uh, the secondary laws that they would um, teach and promote to make sure you didn't break the first laws. And some of those things were not according to God's word. They were oral tradition. And when he found that allegiance to these oral traditions meant nullifying the written law of God, Jesus would alter him. For example, doing good on the Sabbath. Jesus would confront that one many times. Somebody would lame, he had a withered hand in the congregation and on the Sabbath day, he healed them. So that we can see in looking at at these accusations that there was a twisting of what Stephen taught in order to put him on trial. And this is what we'll look at next week in Stephen's response to these accusations. It's interesting, the more that Stephen looked like Jesus, the more he was treated like Jesus by those from the outside. But I love this last verse as we come to a close. We see Stephen as one who has been with God. It says in verse 15 that all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. There's not an ounce of distress in Stephen's eyes. There was no wavering fear, but instead a calm confidence. Many relate this passage to the glowing face of Moses as he had spent time with the Lord on the mountain, and he would come down to, or he would spend time in the tent talking to the Lord, glory of the Lord meeting with him, and his face would glow as a result of But I think I've thought something kind of cool. It's just the face of an angel. We have angels that are forever before the presence of the Lord, praising and worshiping Him. And we see that that Stephen looks like one who has been with God, sitting before God. If I might quote from a commentary here. It says, So full of the Spirit, so full of wisdom, faith, grace, and power is Stephen, that the glory of God shines from his face. To a greater or lesser extent, that's the way it is with all who are full of the Spirit of God. As we come back full circle, we see the fullness of Stephen of the Spirit, or Stephen being full of the Spirit, that no matter what his life encountered, he was totally confident and secure in who he knew and who he served. Today we're going to take a moment and we're going to uh, partake in communion. I'll have the worship team come forward. We're going to have the uh, elements here that will be set out. And as we play this last worship song, uh, you can come forward to pick up the cup of bread and and the juice. But I wanted to read these words of, of Paul written to the Corinthians. When he's talking to them, he says, I... For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup. Is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So as we reflect upon the work of Christ and Stephen this morning, the continued work of the Holy Spirit through this early church. And through these individuals that comprise the church. We look and remember whose body we are. Jesus who has offered up his body. Which was broken for us. His blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. But also is the cup of the new covenant that cannot be changed. It's the proclamation that we have been saved by grace through faith because of what Christ has done, not because of ourselves. So as we take this, let's examine ourselves this morning to see where we are at with him. To pray to ask him for that filling of the spirit to bring him glory through our lives to taste and see that he is good